Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. Before I introduce our guest today, uh, for which I am exquisitely excited, I'd like to share with you that when my father was alive, God rest his soul, he said that if I were invited to have dinner with the Pope at the Vatican, the only thing I would really be worried about is what's on the menu. So my point here is it's not often that I am intimidated or a little concerned about speaking with anyone in the world with the exception of our guest today. I am delighted to introduce our guest, Dr. Ira Bayak, who's a physician and author, patient advocate, and founder of the Institute for Human Caring at Providence St. Joseph Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Bayak. How are you? I'm very well, Lynn. Thank you. That's the, that was one of the nicest introductions I've ever had, uh, and it's truly a, a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, and just, of course, if there's anybody on the planet who does not know, Dr. Byatt is exceptionally well-published, uh, his books, Dying Well, The Four Things That Matter Most, and The Best Care Possible. A little anecdote about his first book, Dying Well, it came out in spring of 1998, I believe, and I read it over the Mother's Day weekend while I had the flu, which my husband found very intriguing. So he said, I can't believe you're so sick and reading that book. I was like, well, what better time, right? So an amazing, amazing author. So I have known Dr. Bayak for a long time, and I'm just so excited that we have a chance to chat today. And what made me think of asking him to do this podcast is two essays that you've published recently. The one is, This Pandemic is Personal, and the other is titled, A Crash Course in Being Mortal. What prompted you to write those? I have been living through this pandemic like everybody else, uh, Mm -hmm. aware of so many implications. Um, you know, uh, I've been part of the uh, executive response within Providence St. Joseph Health to the pandemic. And uh, I think in the first essay, I talked about uh, literally every morning we would spend a half hour as an emergency operations council uh, pulled together by Amy Compton Phillips, the chief uh, clinical officer, and across the enterprise probably 200, 250 people would discuss what are we going to do about this and how do we respond most uh, thoroughly with all sorts of things that we do, the clinical enterprise, uh, uh, supply chain, um, laboratory issues, regulatory issues, telehealth, you know, probably 30 or 40 other things, but those are big chunks. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was busy and our team was busy. Um, but um, but I recognize that one of the one of the messages that's coming through is this is personal, right? Absolutely. Is, this is not you know H one N one or even AIDS, which I lived and worked through. This this one at, at this time, you know, uh, the the bell that's ringing tolls for me too. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm in a high risk group. So is my wife. Yeah. Um, and, and so. You know, we were kind of busily going on with our lives, sequestered, being safe at home, washing our hands, not touching our face, <laughs> all of that. Mm-hmm. But also, and, and I'm having meetings all day now by, you know, video uh, with our team. Um, but all the while, aware that um, my life is threatened. And, and, and um, you know... 
I think about these things a lot, and I, I you know, I, I'm somewhat introspective by by nature. So uh, after a while, I, I, you know, the first few days, I thought, well, maybe I'm just being overly melodramatic, and you know, uh, and then each of my two daughters called. Mm-hmm. And they may have been talking. I have never asked them yet wh- whether they were talking to one another. But each of them called and and basically, you know, uh, uh, gave me the third degree. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Dad, where are you going today? Do you really need to go out? You know, um, can't you get groceries delivered? Um, uh, wh- what about tomorrow? Uh, uh, we were uh, uh, Yvonne and I uh, were in Missoula, where our real home is. But we we've been spending. 85% of our time in LA and we have a rental home there that we love too and blah 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 and but we were happened to be up here when the bottom dropped out of this and it became very clear that that sheltering in place was the right thing to do mm-hmm. and uh, and both daughters said you're not coming back to LA are you <laughs> and, Uh-oh. And, I, and you know I noticed they were asking questions in a way that weren't they weren't questions they were sort of like you're gonna you know they were they were clearly directives mm-hmm. and, and I immediately recognized that that tone was a parental tone and that uh oh our roles had just reversed <laughs> they were doing yeah. parent here right yeah she's on the other foot now huh right and then I realized no I'm not being melodramatic they get it too this is real it is right? real I remember with H1N1 and AIDS was when I was in pharmacy school, and my prevailing thought for both of those was, gee, that's really too bad. But, boy, this one has hit me right between the eyes, I think, because uh, I probably and my husband fall in that same category of being at high risk that you mentioned for you and your wife. And it's very scary. It's, it's hard contemplating the future. And, I mean, and my immediate thought was all the meetings that would be canceled. But this has far greater implications, I think. Let's talk about your essay on a crash course in being mortal. I found that very interesting. And you've already alluded to of the three assignments, assignment number one, which was to, uh, you know, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and so forth. Um, I hope that everyone is doing that, certainly. I'm a little alarmed by the people who are protesting and want the country open back up again. I, I don't quite understand that. Do you think they just don't understand what's going on is really real, or is this entirely driven by fear of unemployment? What are your thoughts on that? Okay, well, <clears throat> this is going to sound a bit extreme, but I, I think this is, they're not, everybody has a right to their opinion, and they have a right to free speech. <clears throat> These people are actually endangering all of us. Yes. Uh, by coming together, um, they're not just being ill-informed, misinformed, you know, uh, uh, I, I get it. And again, I, I, I think there's rights to assemble and rights to free speech, with some limits being the balance of, of, uh, of people's safety. Um, here, they're endangering all of our safety. This is not okay. So, uh, you know, you could call that politics, but it's actually, no, in a functional, if we had a functional central government, um, th- this would simply not be allowed. It's because a tough one. It, it, this is the second wave. You're, you're, you are seeing the seeding of the second wave now. Yeah. Um, so so I'm, I feel very strongly. So, so assignment number one, and, and I was going to get there. Uh, let me just uh, uh, say that, you know, I, I wrote this, the, the first essay, this pandemic is personal, was 
mm-hmm. personal, what the, what the implications are to each of us as individuals and certainly to me, uh, and getting, giving a, having a different perspective, having sort of the veneer of, of simply getting through this e- epidemic as a professional serving, as a physician and other, you know, whatever roles I have, that was that. The second essay, uh, Crash Course in Being Mortal, was sort of here's the cultural and social implications, right, that mm-hmm. we are all being called to recognize that we're mortal. It, it, it's not like that, you know, uh, nature is simply um, trying to get our attention. You know, she's screaming at us yeah. <laughs> and actually implementing it in a sense that not only is it now a, an existential become tangible threat, because um, it's still always it's still always existential until it actually you're sick, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it but existential in the literal way where it could extinguish us. That's that's that. But also all the stuff that distracts us in our usual busy lives from recognizing that ultimately we're just a a, a human animal who's quite mortal and and. And, and, you know, might die really at any moment from a lethal arrhythmia, from a car accident, from whatever. Um, because the stuff that keeps us busy and keeps us, you know, engaged from our work to our busy families' lives and, and travel and commerce and our fashion, our, you know, makeup, our, you know, what we how we dress. For me, it's thinking about what I'm having for dinner that night, two days before. <laughs> All <laughs> of that, that. has fallen away. Isn't that interesting? You know, yes. I have to remember not to wear the same shirt I wore yesterday because I'm just going back down to my office, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, I didn't get my hair cut for six weeks. Uh, um, I haven't used my car, I, I, all of that stuff has fallen away, and things are getting pretty elemental. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have so, to, I, I wonder, I, though, how do you balance that with um, not going too far in the other direction and just becoming so paranoid about everything? I mean, we still are alive, so do you know what I mean? Well, so that's the point. So that you just skipped from... <laughs> So from to assignment three, because, you know, assignment one was stay safe and don't die if you can. If you can. Assignment two is get your house in order, right? Um, make sure that on any given day there's nothing left undone. You, all of your stuff, you know, uh, uh, I mentioned that my wife and I are getting our, um, you know, uh, um, if I, in case of death box together for our documents, and um, I've been reaching out to colleagues and old friends who I haven't seen for years just to let them know I care about them and leave nothing left unsaid and, you know, all of that, uh, getting, getting all our fears in order. Assignment three is face your fears and actually acknowledge it and go into it. So, you know, what would happen if were I to die? How do I affect all of that? And, and the point is that and we know this, those of us who do this work in palliative care and hospice care, when you sit with people who are forced to face the facts that time is short, life doesn't become less rich, it becomes more rich. So often people 
talk about the enhanced intensity of of of, of living. The, it's, it seems paradoxical, but uh, but I get it because you get this tangible lived sense that uh, life is a precious gift. It's always been a finite gift, and it's and it's a fragile gift, but it's mm-hmm. so precious, so sweet. Um, you know, so ironically, in facing death, we begin to live fully. Boy, that's, but it has brings with it a sense of almost being frantic sometimes. Or I, I don't know. It just seems to me it's tough to balance not going overboard and not being completely fatalistic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for me, I think, and I, and I think for many people, when you actually acknowledge it and can and can incorporate it rather than re- react merely with fear, if you if you if you are able to breathe through that, that sense of panic, that, that, you know, flight or fight, mostly flight, I don't want to think about it, I don't know am I going to get distracted, what's on Netflix, damn it, what are we having for dinner, you know, but if you're just able to sort of, in a, in a kind of centered way, breathe through that and stay with it, what ends up happening is um, uh, not a pall on, on life, but a but a sense of fru- of how can I say this the freedom to live fully and to celebrate life uh, mm-hmm. and simple pleasures become precious uh, our relationships which may have even if we like somebody may have been kind of more transactional than because we're all busy right it somehow becomes you're, you're more it's more easy to be aware of how precious every phone call is. Absolutely. Uh, I'm together. So that, that's been my experience. I think in um, those of us who have some sort of Buddhist leanings, I call myself a Jew-boo, you know. <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> Jewish by upbringing and Buddhist by orientation. Um, there is this sense that when you're actually able to face that and, and go through the fear of death, where you arrive is right here, and oh, isn't this great, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Which is WTF, real right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> Goodness, I was very struck by your line in your essay that, um, with your assignment three, facing your fears, you wrote. It is the loss of having been that evokes death anxiety and the prospect of endless separation from the people we love that occupies the core of what we dread about being dead. And boy, that nails it. That nails it. I'm really going to miss me. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'll probably yeah. precede you, but yeah. I don't know. I hope, yeah. I hope we both live to be, I hope you live to be 105 and the last voice you hear is mine. How about that? Thank you very much. <laughs> um, Goodness. Yeah. So yeah, this this is this is a a, a cultural moment. You know, it, it's the WTF moment, right? We are being to to not notice that in the face of a pandemic where where you know, and it's not just old people because a lot of the right. people who are dying are in their you know thirties, forties, fifties. 
Mm-hmm. Um, um, in the face of, of, of that happening, being on the news, happening in our communities, um, still not being reminded because we have to wear masks now and stay six feet apart and all that, that those are constant reminders. This, this, this is the alarm that won't stop ringing. So I think the, the um, psychologically, emotionally honest and, and, and robust way to respond is by facing the fact that we're mortal. Let's finally acknowledge it and live fully as mortal human beings. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's the sort of um, um, macro lesson that we're being offered here. Mm-hmm. I think watching the news every day almost makes things worse, especially when you watch the heart-rending stories and of nurses, for example, on the front line who are crying hysterically about recounting how they've held someone's face, uh, phone up while they FaceTime their family to say goodbye. That just rips my heart out. The statistics and the political pundit shows, which my husband watches 24-7, and I may kill him yet. So I think that sometimes it's too much. What do you think? Yeah, you have to, I think you you definitely have to titrate it, right? You have to titrate your dose of all that. It's good to be reminded of it, to know it. Um, For for me uh, and our team, the, the Institute for Human Caring is this quality improvement engine within Providence, and we've been we've been very active in trying to bridge those physical gaps and mm-hmm. think creatively about how um, uh, clinicians, frontline nurses and doctors, the palliative care consultants who are, who are now often either at the bedside or working through a video, how, mm-hmm. how can we use the technology, and, and sometimes it's low-tech things, to maintain or even create new connections between people in these extraordinarily unusual and difficult times. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to, you know, um, accept that disconnection is necessary uh, despite the physical distancing that is necessary. I agree. I, from what I've observed over the past month or so, I think when we come out of this, hopefully we will come out of it eventually, there will be a new recognition of and appreciation for palliative care. I think palliative care has risen to this occasion magnificently. What are your thoughts on that? I, I completely agree. I, I think uh, we've proven ourselves indispensable. Absolutely. Uh, and that there's no going back. Uh, I mentioned I'm on these calls and I'm very much involved in our health system's uh, response and um, many of the, you know, interacting regularly with utterly brilliant, committed clinicians, uh, 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 particularly those in critical care and infectious disease and, you know, all across our system. And let me tell you, um, there is uh, an ever-deepening appreciation for the specialty of palliative care. Um, In what way? What have what's palliative care brought to the table that you think is most appreciated? Um, <laughs> we don't freak out <laughs> when 
people are dying and families are struggling mostly emotionally when decisions have to be made that nobody wants to make. Well, mm-hmm. our, our core skill sets uh, match this situation uh, so well. And I, I say that um, knowing how damn hard it is for us, too, to be doing this. It's really extraordinarily difficult. But who better, right? Absolutely. Who better? Talk about trauma-informed oh. care, right? Right, right. And I, I have long thought, for years I've been uh, aware of and trying to, in every way I can, foster the integration of critical care and palliative care. We ought to be joined in the, at the hip. Uh, mm-hmm. I, always, I thought it was way back when I was uh, directing the Promoting Excellence and End-of-Life Care Project for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, we, we recognized early on, oh, this is a match made in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you when I, I, I then for 10 years ran the palliative care program at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in, in New Hampshire, and one of the reasonably early things we did was just start rounding every day in the ICU. And man, the, the familiarity, <laughs> uh, um, uh, pre, uh, you know, the presence bred warm collegiality. And, you know, here was another, you know, mature set of clinicians who weren't freaked out by critically ill people and had stuff to offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just grew. So that, yeah. I think now th- this crisis and this tragedy of, of COVID has kind of force that familiarity, and with mm-hmm. it comes this, you know, sense of, oh, we are so much better together than separately. Absolutely. I know that MedStar Health is a big healthcare system here on the East Coast in Baltimore, Washington, yep. and they have a very robust palliative care service throughout all of their 8 to 10 hospitals, and they have gone to offering palliative care 24-7. Um, yep. A lot of it telehealth, much of it in person as well, but huge uptake. And I know, I you know, I mostly work in hospice. I get calls like, well, if we can't use meperidine, how can we treat the rigor associated with COVID? What do we do? We just found out we're out of IV morphine and hydromorphine and fentanyl. What do we do now? So very real questions. A lot of interesting challenges. Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, yes. So I don't think there's any going back. I think our health systems are likely to um, um, see the specialty and service line in a, in a new and different, better way, frankly. I do too. I do too. Lots of resources available. I know that CAPSI has provided quite a bit uh, on their webpage uh, gratis, which is very helpful. Uh, yep. Any other resources you'd like to point out to our listeners? Um, well, there's been many. Vital Talk certainly has done great work. We we, we work from Vital Talk's um, talking points and remap to uh, tailor it to our, our uh, system, uh, tweaking uh, a number of things, but using their very strong f- uh, framework. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ariadne Labs uh, out of Boston, uh, the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, they've tailored some very good communication tools. Um, you know, so many things. One of the things that our um, team has done, well, well I'll, I'll highlight two things. Um, no three. One is t- 
telehealth and, and telepalliation is going to mm-hmm. be a thing going forward. Um, uh, in our system, uh, we, we have made more progress, and we've been working on this for four years. We've made mm-hmm. more progress in the last four weeks than we have in the previous four years. And yeah. there's no going to that either. That, that, mm-hmm. that capacity will now uh, uh, create a new platform on which we build going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, second is just a, a, we've had this thing called a get-to-know-me poster uh, for years and have been using it across our system, uh, you know, locally with great regional variation and local variation how often it's used. But these wonderful posters, they're like 11 by 17. They have a little uh, sketch of an outline of a person's head and then balloons coming out of the head. You know, this is what I like to be called. This, these are the things mm-hmm. I need to hear and see. You know, mm-hmm. um, this is the, these are the people most important to me. This is the kind of TV I like and movies I like or those verses I don't like. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is what I look like when I'm well and all, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And just to deliver people from anonymity. And it's good when in the ICU because so many of the people are not able to respond or insensate because of their illness or because we've sedated them so they won't buck, buck the vent and all of that or in the rooms of dementia, people with dementia or delirium and mm-hmm. all of that. They also work in long-term care nicely with people with dementia, for instance. All mm-hmm. well and good. Well, we realize this is one of our many strategies to um, kind of counter this physical distancing and this sense of, you know, people being abandoned or not, not that's the right, that's the wrong word, isolated is the better word, mm-hmm. not, you know, being socially isolated and, uh, and we, so we, we started printing these things and we're sending them out to our 51 hospitals. And we're also working now to digitize this um, mm-hmm. so that families can, uh, with the help of nursing staff or social work staff, uh, help populate these things. Now, they, these posters belong to the patient and family, so HIPAA doesn't apply, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're a way for everybody who walks in a room or outside the room to, to know that this is a whole person. This is not just, mm-hmm. you know, patient with, you know, respiratory failure or congestive heart failure, hypertension, and diabetes. No, mm-hmm. this is a whole person, mm-hmm. right? So that, it, that's something that um, in the midst of this is something that's always had value in the midst of this is getting adopted at accelerated pace. It sounds like the dignity therapy question. What do I need to know about you so I can best take care of you? Sure. We we are we are trying to move healthcare from uh, problem based only kind of the transactional. I'm, I'm going to address. I'm going to assess and treat your problems to relational. Mm-hmm. I relate to you as a whole person. We in Providence we like to say we are whole persons caring for whole persons. That's great. That's the quadruple aim, right? We are I whole like persons that. caring for whole persons. Definitely. Um, and then, and then another one that I, I um, um, would call attention to is uh, we, we developed something called the Trusted Decision Maker designation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is not an advanced directive, but it, it looks like an advanced directive. It is entered into the uh, patient's electronic health record when signed by a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a PA. Those are the three peop- uh, categories of clinicians who can sign it. And, mm-hmm. and that's because it attests to the patient in front of me today 
has capacity to make decisions. And then this, you know, the, the, the designation is this is who I trust to speak for me if I'm unable to speak for myself. And here are four boxes of, I've checked one of these boxes. Uh, these are my general preferences for care if I were to become seriously ill. Not a menu of I want CPR, I want mechanical ventilation, I don't want dialysis or, I, you know, I medically administered nutrition hydration. No different form. It's my general preferences to inform the person I just named as my trusted decision maker and my future clinicians, okay? And, the, and, the, and basically, the, the three preferences are I want everything. I don't care if you think my quality of life is worth sustaining or not. I want to be kept alive. Two is I realize we're, life is precious, but I realize we're all mortal. Please balance my quality of life, particularly my ability to recognize and interact with keeping me alive. And the third is, um, uh, I, if I'm seriously ill or injured, I simply want to be kept comfortable and allowed to die naturally. Mm-hmm. But I said four boxes. The first box is, I don't know today what I really want, how I feel about this. I trust the person I just named to make uh-huh. the best decision on my behalf, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we designed this a couple of years ago recognizing that there are two basic things that keep people, adults, from completing an advanced directive. One is when they, on any given day, there may not be two witnesses or a notary available to sign it and make it legal and statute. But the second is when you ask people if they would want mechanical ventilation or, you know, to be hospitalized or to... to you know, have dialysis. It's a, it's a hypothetical and conditioned on a number of circumstances that are hard to kind of envision. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to know, tell me more. Am, have I just had a head injury and I might recover, but we don't know yet? Or am I at the far end of far advanced cancer and there's not a tinker's chance I'm ever going to get back to functional status? And, you, you know, tell me more. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It would be hard for me to, to fill out that menu right now. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you what my general preferences are. Mm-hmm. And even if I can't do that on any given day, and I'm not sure, I can tell you for sure who I would trust to speak for me. And I can give them formal recognition in my health record. The vast majority of adults on any given day can answer that question. So we built a form to do just that. And we actually included places for a witness, witnesses or a notary. We've called it our easy advanced directive form, our easy form, okay? Mm-hmm. It's one page, right, really simple. Um, and that has gotten a lot of traction in our health system. Um, That's great. The trusted decision maker designation stops just short of witnesses or notaries. And yet by policy, we, we took this through governance of our massive health system, and it's a completely legitimate way of documenting in the health record who a person would trust to speak for them and their general preferences. And we're very clear it is subordinate to any advanced directive, and it's subordinate to a, state, a, sur, a surrogate decision maker named in a state's hierarchy law if the state has one. But absence an advanced directive, it's important information that clinicians can use 
as evidence of a patient's wishes, okay? That was a very long explanation. Um, with COVID, <laughs> this thing has gotten traction. And in fact, it's gotten, in for, it's gotten attention nationally. Uh, the, the company called Cake just picked it up and is socializing it because mm -hmm. um, it can be done in a virtual visit, simply charted in the patient's records, right? <clears throat> and it turns out in some states, I would call out Alaska and New Mexico, which is in our catchment area, it actually becomes legal uh, in absence of an advanced directive because it precludes any state hierarchy. Uh, there's a line in their statute that says, if there is documentation of a patient's wishes, um, you know, that can be used as a, as a surrogate decision maker. So it's, it is superseded by a formal durable power of attorney, but absence of power of attorney, it's real. So that's, that's awesome. something we've been working on for a long time. We think it has value and would have value nationally, um, but all of a sudden, this is one that in our health system, there's no turning back. This, this will gain traction, and, and we will finally, I, begin, I believe, begin to move the needle of how many people have documented their preferences in, uh, in an electronic health record. And is this resource available to other people if they'd like to investigate further or adopt it? Absolutely. Um, you can go to the Institute for Human Caring dot org uh, website and read it there. Uh, Angelo Volandes, Aretha uh, Delight Davis, and I uh, published an article in STAT, the uh, the healthcare website, um, mm -hmm. where, in which I give a, a, a talk about the trusted decision maker. Uh, and well, and give a link to uh, that form on our website, on the mm -hmm. institute's website, and uh, Cake, uh, C A K E. Um, I think it's called. I think the website may be choosecake.org, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, it's it's partnering with us and having this form available for download uh, that you can, you know, um, mm -hmm. send to your physician. That's wonderful. Let me take you off topic just for a second. I did a podcast recently with Dr. Arif Kamal. I don't know if you know Dr. Kamal, but he has been part of developing an app and a website, which is the3goodthings.org, with three being the number, where every day, and you can do this in groups like friends and family, you just journalize three things you were grateful for that day. And they link to literature suggesting that if you do this for a week, it actually can make you happier. Have you ever heard of this, or do you have any thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on gratitude and happiness? Um, I'm, I'm totally uh, with it. I, I completely agree. Um, it's, uh, it's remarkable. Uh, gratitude is, um, practicing gratitude is something that actually changes your uh, mood and your, kind of your physiology. Um, mm -hmm. It is just a different way of looking at life. Uh, and, and, oh, by the way, it's, it's bending all the way back to where I, I started with assignment three. You know, when, mm -hmm. you, when you actually go through this and realize that how precious life is uh, but, and how fragile really life is, um, the, the, the natural tendency is not to flee, it's to celebrate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it wow, is, I think we've is, come full circle with that. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It, it, yes, so yes, I'm, I like it. I hadn't heard about uh, Arif's, uh, this project of Arif's, but as yeah, usual. it just came out today. 
terrific. Well, Dr. Mayak, you are awesome sauce. What can I say? You are the berries. I could listen to you read the phone book for three days straight. Uh, you're, you're a fabulous orator, and a, your thoughts are ahead of your time. And We're so grateful that you've spent this time with us. Any last concluding thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Um, I think the uh, most healthy, most uh, authentic response to being moral is to live uh, lovingly and joyfully. Um, so uh, I, will, I will leave you with the traditional uh, Jewish toast, uh, L'chaim, to life. Indeed. Well, this, again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative, period. Again, thank you, Dr. Bayok, and everyone have a good day. Thanks, Lynn.